0: The few who stayed did so because they figured that someday old Henry would die and Edsel would finally take over and set things right. But that's not what happened. In 1943, Edsel died at the age of 49. Edsel's oldest son, the 26-year-old Henry Ford II, quickly left the Navy so that he could return to Dearborn, Michigan and take over the company. Young Henry was taking over a company that hadn't made a profit in 15 years. At that time, it was losing $1 million a day. The young president knew he was in over his head, so he set out to find leaders. Fortunately, the first group actually approached him. Colonel Charles Tex Thornton headed a team of 10 men who had worked together at the War Department during World War II. Their contribution to the Ford Motor Company was substantial. In the years to come, the group produced six company vice presidents and two presidents. The second influx of leadership came with the entrance of Ernie Breach, an experienced General Motors executive and the former president of Ben Dix Aviation. Young Henry hired him to be Ford's executive vice president, a position second to Henry's with the expectation that he would take command and turn the company around. He succeeded. Ford quickly brought in more than 150 outstanding executives from General Motors, and by 1949 Ford Motor Company was on a roll again. In that year, the company sold more than a million Fords, Mercury's, and Lincoln's, the best sales since the Model A. If Henry Ford II had lived by the law of empowerment, the Ford Motor Company might have grown enough to eventually overtake General Motors and become the number one car company again. But only secure leaders are able to give power to others, and Henry felt threatened. The success of Tex Thornton, Ernie Breach, and Louis Crusoe, a legendary GM executive whom Breach had brought into the company, made Henry worry about his own place at Ford. His position was based not on influence, but on his name and his family's control of the company's stock. What was Henry's solution? He began pitting one top executive against another. Any time an executive gained power and influence, Henry undercut the person's authority by moving him to a position with less clout, supporting the executive's subordinates or publicly humiliating him. This maneuver continued all the days Henry II was at Ford. As one Ford president, Lee Iacocca, commented after leaving the company, Henry Ford, as I would learn firsthand, had a nasty habit of getting rid of strong leaders. Iacocca says that Henry Ford II, once described his leadership philosophy to him years before Iacocca himself became its target. Ford said, if a guy works for you, don't let him get too comfortable. Don't let him get too cozy or set in his ways. Always do the opposite of what he expects. Keep your people anxious and off balance. Both Henry Fords failed to abide by the law of empowerment. Rather than identifying leaders, building them up, giving them resources, authority, and responsibility, and turning them loose to achieve, they alternately encouraged and undermined their best people. To lead others well, we must help them to reach their potential. That means being on their side, encouraging them, giving them power, and helping them to succeed. That's not traditionally what we're taught about leadership. What were the two leadership games we were taught as kids? Keen of the Hill and Follow the Leader. What was the object of Keen of the Hill? To knock other people down so that you could be the leader. And what was the point in follow the leader? You do the things you know followers can't do to separate yourself from them and make yourself look more powerful. The problem with these games is that to win, you have to make all the other people lose. The games are based on insecurity and are opposite of the way to raise up leaders. When I travel to developing countries, I am made especially aware of how alien the idea of empowerment can be to emerging leaders in cultures where you have to fight to make something of yourself. The assumption often is that you need to fight others to maintain your leadership, but that reflects a scarcity mindset. The truth is that if you give some of your power away to others, there is still plenty to go around. When I teach the law of empowerment in emerging countries, I usually ask a volunteer to come up so that I can show visually what happens when a leader tries to keep others down instead of raising them up? I asked the volunteer to stand in front of me, and I put my hands on his shoulders. Then I began pushing him down. The lower I want to push him, the more I have to bend down to do it. As I push him lower, I go lower. That's the same way it is in leadership. To keep others down, you have to go down with them. And when you do that, you lose any power to lift others up. When leaders fail to empower others, it's usually due to three main reasons. The number one barrier to empowerment, desire for job security. Weak leaders worry that if they help subordinates, they will themselves become dispensable. But the truth is that the only way to make yourself indispensable is to make yourself dispensable. In other words, if you're able to continually empower others and help them develop so that they can become capable of taking over your job You will become so valuable to the organization that you become indispensable. That is the paradox of the law of empowerment. What if I work myself out of a job by empowering others, you may ask, and my superiors don't recognize my contribution? That can happen in the short term. But if you keep raising up leaders and empowering them, you will develop a pattern of achievement, excellence, and leadership that will be recognized and rewarded. If the teams you lead always seem to succeed, people will figure out that you are leading them well. The number two barrier to empowerment, resistance to change. By its very nature, empowerment brings constant change because it encourages people to grow and innovate. Change is the price of progress. That's not always easy to live with. Most people don't like change. That's a fact. Yet one of the most important responsibilities of leaders is to continually improve their organizations. As a leader, you must train yourself to embrace change, to desire it, to make a way for it. Effective leaders are not only willing to change, they become change agents. The third barrier to empowerment is lack of self-worth. John Pierce observed, You can't lead a cavalry charge if you think you look funny on a horse. Self-conscious people are rarely good leaders. They focus on themselves, worrying how they look, what others think, whether they are liked. They can't give power to others because they feel that they have no power themselves, and you can't give what you don't have. The best leaders have a strong sense of self-worth. They believe in themselves, their mission, and their people. One of the greatest leaders of the United States was known for his humility and willingness to give his power and authority to others abraham lincoln the depth of his security as a leader can be seen in the selection of his cabinet most presidents pick like-minded allies but not lincoln at a time of turmoil for the country when factions were strong lincoln brought together a group of leaders who would bring strength through diversity and mutual challenge one lincoln biographer said this of his method for a president to select a political rival for a cabinet post was not unprecedented but deliberately to surround himself with all of his disappointed antagonists seemed to be courting disaster. It was the mark of his sincere intentions that Lincoln wanted the advice of men as strong as himself or stronger. That he entertained no fear of being crushed or overridden by such men revealed either surpassing naiveness or a tranquil confidence in his power of leadership. Lincoln's desire to unify the country was more important than his personal comfort. His strength and self-confidence allowed him to practice the law of empowerment and bring strong leaders into his circle. In June of 1863, Lincoln put the command of the Army of the Potomac into the hands of General George C. Meade. Within hours of Meade's appointment, Lincoln sent a courier to him. The President's message, in part, said, considering the circumstances no one ever received a more important command. And I cannot doubt that you will fully justify the confidence which the government has reposed in you. You will not be hampered by any minute instructions from these headquarters. Your army is free to act as you deem proper under the circumstances as they arise. All forces within the sphere of your operations will be held subject to your orders. As it turned out, Meade's first significant challenge came as he commanded the army at a small Pennsylvania town named Gettysburg. It was a test he passed with authority. Lincoln's use of the law of empowerment was as consistent as Henry Ford's habit of breaking it. When his generals performed well, Lincoln gave them the credit. When they performed poorly, Lincoln took the blame. Lincoln was able to stand strongly during the war and continually give power to others because of his rock-solid security. You don't have to be a leader of Lincoln's caliber to empower others. The main ingredient for empowering others is a high belief in people. If you believe in others, they will believe in themselves. The truth is that empowerment is powerful, not only for the person being developed, but also for the mentor. Enlarging others makes you larger. That is the law of empowerment. It's an impact you can experience as a leader as long as you are willing to believe in people and give your power away. Law number 13 The Law of the Picture People Do What People See Several years ago, filmmaker Steven Spielberg and actor Tom Hanks produced a series of television shows on HBO called Band of Brothers, based on the book of the same name by historian Stephen Ambrose. The ten episodes chronicled the story of Easy Company, a group of paratroopers from the 101st Airborne who fought during World War II. The men of Easy Company were as tough as soldiers get, and they fought heroically from the invasion of Normandy to the end of the war. The story of Easy Company is a great study in leadership for the various sergeants, lieutenants, and captains who commanded the men displayed many styles of leadership, both good and bad. When the leadership was good, it made the difference, not only in the way the soldiers performed, but in the outcome of their battles and, ultimately, of the war. From the very first episode of the television series, the contrasting leadership styles were on display. Herbert Sobel, Easy Company's commanding officer during his training, was shown to be a brutal, autocratic leader with a sadistic streak. He drove the men harder than the commander of any other company, He arbitrarily revoked passes and inflicted punishment. But judging from Ambrose's research, Sobel was even worse than he was depicted in the series. Sobel drove the men without mercy, which was fine since he was preparing them for combat. But he didn't push himself the same way, being barely capable of passing the physical test required of paratroopers. Nor did he display the high level of confidence that he demanded from everyone else. Ambrose writes about an incident during training that was representative of Sobel's leadership. On one-night exercise, Sobel decided to teach his men a lesson. He and Sergeant Evans went sneaking through the company's position to steal rifles from sleeping men. The mission was successful. By daylight, Sobel and Evans had nearly 50 rifles. With great fanfare, Evans called the company together and Sobel began to tell the men what miserable soldiers they were. What Sobel didn't realize was that the men he was berating weren't his own. He had wandered into the wrong camp and stolen the rifles belonging to Fox Company. Sobel didn't even realize his mistake until the commander of Fox Company came up with 45 of his men. The men who served under Sobel mocked him and undermined him. By the time Easy Company began preparations for the invasion of Normandy, Many men were taking bets on which of them would shoot Sobel when they finally got into combat. Fortunately, Sobel was removed from his position as company commander and reassigned before they went into combat. Fortunately, most of Easy Company's leaders were excellent, and one in particular was awarded the Distinguished Service Cross and was considered by the men to be the best combat leader in World War II. That person was Dick Winters. He started out as a platoon leader in Easy Company during the training and was promoted to company commander after Normandy, and then to battalion executive officer. He finished his military career with the rank of major. Time after time, Winners helped his men to perform at the highest level, and he always led them in front, setting the example, taking the risk along with his men. Ambrose describes Winters' philosophy of leadership simply as officers go first. Whenever his troops needed to assault an enemy position, Winters was in front leading the charge. One of the most remarkable incidents demonstrating Winters' way of leading by example occurred soon after D-Day on the road to Carleton, a town that Easy Company needed to take from the Germans. As the American paratroopers under his command approached the town, They became pinned down by German machine-gun fire. Huddled in ditches on either side of the road, they wouldn't move forward when ordered to. Yet if they didn't move, they would eventually be cut to pieces. Winters tried rallying them. He coaxed them. He kicked them. He ran from one ditch to the other as machine-gun bullets flew by. Finally, he jumped into the middle of the road, bullets glancing off the ground near him, and shouted at the men to get moving. Everyone got up and moved forward as one, and they helped to take the town. More than thirty-five years later, Floyd Talbert, a sergeant at the time, wrote to Winners to comment about the incident. I'll never forget seeing you in the middle of the road. You were my total inspiration. All my boys felt the same way. People do what people see. That is the law of the picture. When the leaders show the way with the right actions, their followers copy them and succeed. Good leaders are always conscious of the fact that they are setting the example and others are going to do what they do, for better or worse. In general, the better the leader's actions, the better their people's. When times are tough, uncertainty is high, and chaos threatens to overwhelm everyone, followers need a clear picture from their leaders the most. That's when they need a leader who embraces the law of the picture. The living picture they see in their leader produces energy, passion, and motivation to keep going. If you desire to become the best leader you can become, you must not neglect the law of the picture. As you strive to improve as an example to your followers, remember these things. First, followers are always watching what you do. If you are a parent, you have probably already realized that your children are always watching what you do. Say anything you want, but your children learn more from what they see than from anywhere else. As parents, Margaret and I realized this early. No matter what we taught our children, they insisted on behaving like us. How frustrating. Just as children watch their parents and emulate their behavior, so do employees watching their bosses. If the bosses come in late, then employees feel that they can too. If the bosses cut corners, employees cut corners. People do what people see. Secondly, it's easier to teach what's right than to do what's right. One of my earliest challenges as a leader was to raise my living to a level of my teaching. I can still remember the day that I decided that I would not teach anything I did not try to live out. That was a tough decision, but as a young leader I was learning to embrace the law of the picture. Author Norman Vincent Peale stated, Nothing is more confusing than people who give good advice but set a bad example. I would say a related thought is also true. Nothing is more convincing than people who give good advice and set a good example. Recently, I received calls on the same day from two reporters, one from the Chicago Tribune and the other from USA Today, about teaching ethics in the business arena. Both asked similar questions. They wanted to know if ethics could be taught. My answer was yes. But many of the companies that teach ethics classes had ethics problems, one reporter pushed back. That's because ethics can be instilled in others only if it's taught and modeled for them, I replied. Too many leaders are like bad travel agents. They send people places they have never been. Instead, they should be more like tour guides, taking people places that they have gone and sharing the wisdom of their own experiences. Leadership by example always has a powerful impact on others. One of the leaders I admire is Rudy Giuliani, former mayor of New York City. During his career, first as an attorney working for the United States government and then later as an elected official, Giuliani led by example. He says in his book, Leadership, that he is very aware that what he does sets the tone for those who follow him. You cannot ask those who work for you to do something you are unwilling to do yourself, he states. It's up to you to set a standard of behavior. Giuliani sums up his leadership this way. All my life, I have been thinking about how to be a leader, whether it was when I was running the corruption unit of the U.S. Attorney's Office in the Southern District of New York, then the narcotics unit, or turning around a bankrupt Kentucky coal company after being appointed as receiver or watching Ronald Reagan, Judge McMahon, and others. I realized later that much of what I was doing in studying these people so closely was preparing. Unconsciously, I was learning how to run things. In other words, he has simply done what he had seen his leaders do throughout his career. He had practiced the law of the picture. Law number 14, the law of buy-in. People buy into the leader, then the vision. When I teach leadership seminars, I field a lot of questions about vision. Invariably, someone will come up to me during a break, give me a brief description of an evolving vision, and then ask me, do you think my people will buy into my vision? My response is always the same. First tell me this, do your people buy into you? You see, many people who approach the area of vision and leadership have it all backward. They believe that if the cause is good enough, people will automatically buy into it and follow. But that's not how leadership really works. People don't, at first, follow worthy causes. They follow worthy leaders who promote causes that they can believe in. People buy into the leader first, then the leader's vision. Having an understanding of that changes your whole approach to leading people. For the person who attends one of my conferences and asks whether his people will follow, the question really becomes, Have I given my people reasons to buy into me? If the answer is yes, they will gladly buy that leader's vision, but if the leader has not built credibility with his people, it really doesn't matter how great the vision is. During the dot-com boom, I read an article in Business Week that profiled entrepreneurs who partnered with venture capitalists in the computer industry. At that time, Silicon Valley in California was full of people who worked in the computer industry for a short time and then tried to start their own companies. Every day, hundreds of them were buzzing around trying to find investors so that they could get their ideas and enterprises off the ground. Most never found backing, but whenever an entrepreneur succeeded once, she found it pretty easy to find money the next time around. Many times, the investors weren't even interested in finding out what the entrepreneur's vision was. If they'd bought into the person, then they readily accepted the ideas. The writer of the article interviewed software entrepreneur Judith Estrin and her partner. At that time, they had founded two companies. She said that funding her first company took six months and countless presentations, even though she had a viable idea and believed in it 100%. But the startup of her second company happened almost overnight. It took only two phone calls that lasted mere minutes for her to land $5 million in backing. When the word got out that she was starting her second company, people were dying to give her even more money. She said we had venture capitals calling us and begging us to take their money. Why had everything changed so drastically for her? Because the law of buy-in. People had bought into her, so they were ready to buy into whatever vision she offered sight unseen. When followers don't like the leader or the vision, they look for another leader. The only time people will follow a leader they don't like with a vision they don't believe in is when the leader has some kind of leverage. That could be something as sinister as a threat of physical violence or as basic as the ability to withhold a paycheck. If the followers have a choice in the matter, they don't follow. And even if they don't have much of a choice, they start looking for another leader to follow. This is a no-win situation for everyone involved. When followers don't like the leader, but they do like the vision, they look for another leader. You may be surprised by this. Even though people may think a cause is good, if they don't like the leader, they will go out and find another one. That's one reason that coaches change teams so often in professional sports. The vision for any team always stays the same. Everyone wants to win a championship. But the players don't always believe in their leader, and when they don't, what happens? The owners don't fire all the players. They fire the leader and bring in someone they hope the players will buy into. The talent level of most professional coaches is similar. The effectiveness of their systems isn't much different. What often separates them is their leadership and their level of credibility with players. When followers like the leader but not the vision, they change the vision. When followers don't agree with their leader's vision, they react in many ways. Sometimes they work to convince their leader to change the vision. Sometimes they abandon their point of view and adopt their leaders. Other times they find a compromise. But as long as they buy into the leader, they rarely out and out reject him. They will keep following. An excellent example occurred in Great Britain. Tony Blair had a long tenure in office as Prime Minister. He was a popular leader elected to serve three terms. Yet at the same time, the majority of people in Great Britain were against Blair's policies of involving the nation in the war with Iraq. Why did Blair remain in office so long? Because they had bought into him as a leader. As a result, they were willing to live with their philosophical difference with him. When followers like the leader and the vision, they get behind both the leader and the vision. When people believe in their leader and the vision, they will follow their leader no matter how bad conditions get or how much odds are stacked against them. That's why the Indian people in Gandhi's day refused to fight back as soldiers mowed them down. That's what inspired the U.S. space program to fulfill John F. Kennedy's vision and put a man on the moon. That's the reason people continued to have hope and keep alive the dream of Martin Luther King Jr., even after he was gunned down. That's what continues to inspire followers to keep running the race, even when they feel they've hit the wall and given everything they've got. As a leader, having a great vision and a worthy cause is not enough to get people to follow you. You have to become a better leader. You must get your people to buy into you. That is the price you have to pay if you want your vision to have a chance of becoming a reality. You cannot ignore the law of buy-in and remain successful as a leader. If in the past you tried to get people to act on your vision but were unable to make it happen, you probably came up against the law of buy-in, maybe without even knowing it. As a leader, you don't earn any points for failing in a noble cause. You don't get credit for being right as you bring the organization to a halt. Your success is measured by your ability to actually take the people where they need to go. But you can do that only if the people first buy into you as a leader. That's the reality of the law of buy-in. Law number 15, the law of victory. Leaders find a way for the team to win. Have you ever thought about what separates the leaders who achieve victory from those who suffer defeat? I think that victorious leaders have one thing in common. They share an unwillingness to accept defeat. The alternative to winning is totally unacceptable to them. As a result, they figure out what must be done to achieve victory. Crisis seems to bring out the best and the worst in leaders, because at such times the pressure is intense and the stakes are high. That was certainly true during World War II, when Adolf Hitler was threatening to crush Europe and remake it according to his vision. But against the power of Hitler and his Nazi hordes stood a leader determined to win, a practitioner of the law of victory, British Prime Minister Winston Churchill. He inspired the British people to resist Hitler and ultimately win the war. Winston Churchill was a courageous leader who had practiced the law of victory throughout his life. He refused to buckle under the Nazis' threats. For more than a year, Great Britain stood alone facing the threat of German invasion. When Hitler indicated that he wanted to make a deal with England, Churchill defied him. When Germany began bombing England, the British stood strong, and all the while Churchill looked for a way to gain victory. Time after time, Churchill rallied the British people. It began with his first speech after becoming prime minister, in which he said, We have before us an ordeal of the most grievous kind. We have before us many, many long months of struggle and of suffering. You ask, what is our policy? I can say it is to wage war by sea, land, and air, with all our might and with all the strength that God can give us, to wage war against a monstrous tyranny never surpassed in the dark, lamentable catalog of human crime. That is our policy. You ask, what is our aim? I can answer in one word. Victory. Victory at all cost. Victory in spite of all terror. Victory however long and hard the road may be. For without victory, there is no survival. When Churchill sought the aid of Franklin Roosevelt, he was enlisting a leader who had practiced the law of victory for decades. It was a hallmark of Roosevelt's entire life. He had found a way to achieve political victory... While winning over polio, when he was elected president and became responsible for pulling the American people out of the Great Depression, it was just another impossible situation that he learned how to fight through. And fight he did. Through the 1930s, the country was slowly recovering, due in a large part to his leadership. To Churchill and Roosevelt, victory was the only option. If they had accepted anything less, the world would be a very different place today. Pulitzer Prize-winning historian Arthur Schlesinger, Jr. noted, "...take a look at our present world. It is manifestly not Adolf Hitler's world. His thousand-year Reich turned out to have a brief and bloody run of a dozen years. It is manifestly not Joseph Stalin's world, that ghastly world self-destructed before our eyes." Without Churchill and England, all of Europe would have fallen. Without Roosevelt and the United States, it might never have been reclaimed for freedom. But not even an Adolf Hitler and the army of the Third Reich could stand against two leaders dedicated to the law of victory. Whether it's a sports team, an army, a business, or a non-profit organization, victory is possible as long as you have three components that contribute to a team's dedication to victory. Number one. Unity of vision. Teams succeed only when the players have a unified vision, no matter how much talent or potential there is. A team doesn't win the championship if its players are working from different agendas. That's true in professional sports, that's true in business, that's true in nonprofits. Number two, diversity of skills. It almost goes without saying that a team needs diversity in skills. Can you imagine a whole hockey team of goalies or a football team of quarterbacks? How about a business where there are only salespeople or nothing but accountants, or a non-profit organization with just fundraisers, or only strategists? It doesn't make sense. Every organization requires diverse talents to succeed. Number 3. A Leader Dedicated to Victory in Raising Players to Their Potential it's true that having good players with diverse skills is important. As former Notre Dame head football coach Lou Holt says, you've got to have great athletes to win. I don't care who the coach is. You can't win without good athletes, but you can lose with them. This is where coaching makes the difference. In other words, you also require leadership to achieve victory. Unity of vision doesn't happen spontaneously. The right players with the proper diversity of talent don't come together on their own. It takes a leader to make those things happen. It takes a leader to provide the motivation, empowerment, and direction required to win. One of the most noteworthy success stories I have come across is that of Southwest Airlines Herb Kelleher, whom I mentioned in the chapter on the Law of Connection. The company's story is an admirable example of the law of victory in action. Today, Southwest looks like a powerhouse that has everything going for it. In the routes where it flies, it dominates the market. The company is on a steady growth curve, and its stock perform extremely well. It is the only U.S. airline that has earned a profit every year since 1973, even as other airlines have gone bankrupt and disappeared. It is the only airline that has thrived in the wake of 9-11. Employees love working there. Turnover is extremely low, and the company is considered to have the most productive workforce in the industry. And it's extremely popular with customers. Southwest gets consistently superior customer service ratings. It has maintained the fewest overall customer service complaints in the industry since 1987. Given Southwest's current position, you might think it has always been a powerhouse. That's not the case. In fact, it's a testament to the law of victory that the company even exists today. The airline was begun in 1967 by Roland Keene, owner of a small commuter air service in Texas, John Parker, a banker, and Herb Callaher, an attorney. But it took them four years to get their first plane off the ground, and as soon as the company incorporated, Braniff, Trans-Texas, and Continental Airlines all tried to put it out of business, and they almost succeeded. One court battle followed another, and one man more than any other made the fight his own. Herb Kelleher, when their startup capital was gone and they seemed to be defeated, the board wanted to give up. However, Kelleher said, let's go one more round with them. I will continue to represent the company in court and I'll postpone any legal fees and pay every cent of the court cost out of my own pocket. Finally, when their case made it to the Texas Supreme Court, the trio won and they were at last able to put their planes in the air. Once it got going, Southwest hired experienced airline leader Lamar Muse as its new CEO. He in turn hired the best executives available. And as other airlines kept trying to put them out of business, Kelleher and Muse kept fighting in court and in the marketplace. When they had trouble filling their planes going to and from Houston, Southwest began flying into Houston's Hobby Airport, which is more accessible to commuters because of its proximity to downtown. When all the major carriers moved to the newly created Dallas-Fort Worth Airport, Southwest kept flying into Convenient Love Field. When the airline had to sell one of its four planes to survive, the executives figured out a way for their remaining planes to be on the ground no longer than an amazingly short ten minutes between flights. That way, Southwest could maintain routes and schedules. And when they couldn't figure out any other way to fill their planes, they pioneered peak and off-peak pricing giving leisure travelers a huge break in the cost of fares. Through it all, Kelleher kept fighting and helped keep Southwest alive. In 1978, seven years after he helped put the company's first small fleet of planes into the air, he became chairman of the company. In 1982, he was made president and CEO. Today, he serves as executive chairman of the board. He and his colleagues continue to fight and find ways for the company to win. Southwest President Colleen Barrett sums it up. The warrior mentality, the very fight to survive, is truly what created our culture. What Kelleher, Barrett, and the rest of the Southwest leadership team have is not just a will to survive, but a will to win. Leaders who practice the law of victory believe that anything less than success is unacceptable. They have no plan B. That is why they keep fighting, and it's why they continue to win. What is your level of expectation when it comes to succeeding for your organization? How dedicated are you to winning your game? Are you going to have the law of victory in your corner as you fight, or when times get difficult, are you going to throw in the towel? Your answer to that question may determine whether you succeed or fail as a leader, and whether your team wins or loses. Law number 16 THE LAW OF THE BIG MO Momentum is a leader's best friend. If ever there was a person with talent and vision, it was Ed Catmull. In 1979, filmmaker George Lucas hired Catmull to run the computer graphics division of Lucasfilm Limited. Catmull tried to convince Lucas to let him try to make computer-generated feature films, but the technology was still in its early stages and too expensive. Instead, Lucas decided to sell the division. In 1986, Steve Jobs bought it by paying $5 million for it and putting an additional $5 million into the company. He named it Pixar. While it was struggling to become profitable, Pixar began making short films to demonstrate the power of its technology. The first was called Luxo Jr. It shows two animated desk lamps interacting as a parent and a child would. Luxo Jr. was so good that it was nominated for an Academy Award. But Catmull and his team were still a long way from achieving his dream of creating a full-length feature film. The company's greatest challenge at that time was merely surviving. Then in 1991, because of the credibility Pixar had earned, it got a significant break. The leaders thought the company was ready to take its next big step, creating a one-hour television special. John Lasseter, an animator who teamed up with Catmull, approached Disney, his former employer, to pitch the idea. The response amazed him. Disney offered a contract to create three full-length feature movies using computer animation. Disney would fund and distribute the projects. Pixar would create them and receive a percentage of the profits. Pixar finally had an opportunity to fulfill Catmull's vision but the company was still far from realizing it. The company got to work on what would become Toy Story, but the team had trouble with the characters and the story. It would take Pixar four years to make the movie. Though the rest of the world wasn't seeing it yet, Pixar was starting to develop momentum. That became obvious to everyone when Toy Story opened in November 1995. When the contract with Disney was signed four years earlier, Pixar's CEO Stephen Jobs estimated that if the first movie was a modest hit, say seventy five million at the box office, we'll both break even. If it gets one hundred million, we'll both make money. But if it's a real blockbuster and earns two hundred million or so at the box office, we'll make good money and Disney will make a lot of money. Few people would have predicted that it would make 192 million domestically and 362 million worldwide. From that time, Pixar's momentum has been strong and, if anything, has continued to grow. The organization has won 17 Oscars and been awarded 42 patents. And since Toy Story came out, the company has produced hit after hit. A Bug's Life. Toy Story 2. Monsters, Inc. Finding Nemo, The Incredibles, and Cars. Worldwide, those movies have earned more than $3.67 billion. Ironically, while Pixar was gaining momentum, Disney, the company who helped it create its breakthrough, was losing momentum. Disney's animation division had fallen on hard times. Its last significant animated movie was Lilo and Stitch in 2002 and it had produced three highly expensive bombs, Atlantis, Treasure Planet, and Home on the Range. How could Disney possibly regain some momentum? Bob Iger, who became Disney's president and CEO in October 2005, knew how. He purchased Pixar. Now the people Disney once helped were helping Disney. Catmull became Disney's president of feature animation, and Lasseter was made chief creative officer. Disney has had two major heydays, says Catmull. We're going to make a third. And what about Pixar? It will continue to function as before under the care of Catmull and Lassiter. When you've got great momentum, you don't want to do anything to get in its way. After all, momentum is a leader's best friend. Many times, it's the only thing that makes the difference between losing and winning. When you have no momentum, even the simplest tasks seem impossible. Small problems look like insurmountable obstacles. Morale becomes low. The future appears dark. An organization with no momentum is like a train at a dead stop. It's hard to get going, and even small wooden blocks on the track can keep it from going anywhere. On the other hand, when you have momentum on your side, the future looks bright. Obstacles appear small, and troubles seem inconsequential. An organization with momentum is like a train that's moving 60 miles per hour. You could build a steel-reinforced concrete wall across the tracks, and the train would plow right through it. When leadership is strong and there is momentum in an organization, people are motivated and inspired to perform at higher levels. They become effective beyond their hopes and expectations. If you remember the 1980 U.S. Olympic hockey team, you know what I'm talking about. The team was good, but not good enough to win the gold medal. Yet that's what the Americans did. Why? Because leading up to the championship game, they won game after game against very tough teams. They gained so much momentum that they performed beyond everyone's expectations. And after they beat the Russians, nothing could stop them from coming home with the gold medal. The same kind of thing is true in business and volunteer organizations. When an organization has great momentum, all participants are more successful than they would be otherwise. I'll tell you how I know that that's true. If you see leaders, especially mid-level ones, who have had great success in an organization with momentum, leave that organization and suddenly their performance becomes merely average, you know the law of the big mo was at work. Even average people can perform far above average in an organization with great momentum. Momentum is easier to steer than to start. Have you ever been water skiing? If you have, you know that it's harder to get up on the water than it is to steer once you're up there. It takes a leader to create momentum. Followers can catch it. Good managers are able to use it to their advantage once it has begun. Everyone can enjoy the benefits it brings, but creating momentum requires someone who has a vision, can assemble a good team, and motivate others. If the leader is looking for someone to motivate him, then the organization is in trouble. If the leader is waiting for the organization to develop momentum on its own, then the organization is in trouble. It is the leader's responsibility to initiate momentum and keep it going. U.S. President Harry Truman once said, If you can't stand the heat, get out of the kitchen. But for leaders, that statement should be changed to, If you can't make some heat, get out of the kitchen. If you don't believe in the vision and enthusiastically pursue it, doing all that you can to bring it to fruition, then you won't start making the small gains required to get the ball rolling. However, if you model enthusiasm to your people day in and day out, you attract like-minded people to your team, department, or organization and motivate them to achieve. You will begin to see forward progress. Once you do, you will begin to generate momentum, and if you're wise, you'll value it for what it is. The Leader's Best Friend Once you have it, you can do almost anything. That's the power of the Big Mo. Several years ago, I saw a movie called Stand and Deliver that illustrates the hopelessness many people feel in an organization without momentum. Maybe you've seen it, too. It's about a real-life teacher named Jamie Escalante who worked at Garfield High School in East Los Angeles, California. Teaching, motivating, and leading were in Jamie Escalante's blood, even from the time of his youth in native Bolivia. He quickly became known as his city's finest teacher. When he was in his thirties, Escalante and his family immigrated to the United States. He worked several years in a restaurant and then at Russell Electronics. Though he could have pursued a promising career at Russell, he went back to school and earned a second bachelor's degree so that he could teach in the United States escalante's burning desire was to make a difference in people's lives at age 43 he was hired by garfield high school to teach computer science but when he arrived at garfield on the first day of class he found out that there was no funding for computers and because his degree was in mathematics he would be teaching basic math disappointed he went in search of his first class hoping that his dream of making a difference wasn't slipping through his fingers The change from computers to math turned out to be the least of Escalante's problems. The school, which had been empty and quiet during his summertime interview, was now in chaos. Discipline was non-existent. Fights seemed to break out continually. Trash and graffiti were everywhere. Students and even outsiders from the neighborhood roamed all over the campus throughout the day. Gang activity was rampant. It was a teacher's worst nightmare. Almost daily he thought of quitting. But his passion for teaching and his dedication to improving the lives of his students wouldn't allow him to give up. Yet at the same time, Escalante was enough of a leader to know that the students were doomed if the school didn't change. They were all sliding backward fast, and they needed something to move them forward. When a new principal was brought in, things began to change for the better. But Escalante wanted to take it further. He believed that the way to improve the school was to challenge the school's best and brightest with a calculus class that would prepare them for an AP class earning them college credit. In the fall of 1978, Escalante organized the first calculus class, rounding up every possible candidate who might be able to handle the course from Garfield's 3,500-student population. He was able to find only 14 students. In the first few classes, he laid out the work it would take for them to prepare for the AP calculus test at the end of the year. By the end of the second week of school, he had lost seven students. Even the ones who stayed were not well prepared for calculus, and by late spring, he was down to only five students. All of them took the AP test in May, but only two passed. Escalante was disappointed, but he refused to give up, especially since he had made progress. He knew that if he could help his students experience a few wins, build their confidence, and give them hope, he could move them forward. He was determined to do whatever it took. To motivate them, he'd give them extra homework or challenge one of the school athletes to a handball match. Escalante never lost. If they needed encouragement, he'd take them out to McDonald's as a reward. If they got lazy, he'd inspire, amaze, amuse, and even intimidate them. And all along the way, he modeled hard work, dedication to excellence, and desire. The next fall, Escalante put together another calculus class, this time with nine students. At the end of the year, eight took the test, and six passed. He was making progress. Word of his success spread. Students heard that Escalante's protégés were earning college credit, and in the fall of 1980, his calculus class numbered 15. When they all took the test at the end of the year, 14 students passed. The steps forward weren't huge, but Escalante could see that the program was building momentum. The next group of students, numbering 18, was the subject of the movie Stand and Deliver. Like their predecessors, they worked very hard to learn calculus, many coming to school at 7 a.m. every day, a full hour and a half before school started. And often they stayed until 5, 6, or 7 p.m., and though Educational Testing Service questioned the validity of the first test students took, they had to take it a second time. 100% of them passed. After that, the math program exploded. But the benefits of the law of the Big Mo were felt by all of the Garfield High School students. The school started offering classes to prepare students for other AP exams. In time, Garfield held regular AP classes in Spanish, Calculus, History, European history, biology, physics, French, government, and computer science. In 1987, nine years after Escalante spearheaded the program, Garfield's students took more than 325 AP examinations. Most incredibly, Garfield had a waiting list of more than 400 students from areas outside its boundaries wanting to enroll. The school that was once the lapping stock of the district and that had almost lost his accreditation, had become one of the top three inner-city schools in the entire nation. That's the power of the law of the Big Mo. Law number 17, the Law of Priorities. Leaders understand that activity is not necessarily accomplishment. When we are busy, we naturally believe that we are achieving But busyness does not equal productivity. Activity is not necessarily accomplishment. Prioritizing requires leaders to continually think ahead, to know what's important, to know what's next, to see how everything relates to the overall vision. That's hard work. Prioritizing also causes us to do things that are at the least uncomfortable and sometimes downright painful. Every year, I spend about two weeks in December reevaluating my priorities. I review the previous year's schedule. I look at my upcoming commitments. I evaluate my family life. I think about my goals. I look at the big picture of what I'm doing to make sure the way I'm living lines up with my values and priorities. One of the guiding principles I use during the process is the Pareto Principle. I have often taught it to people at leadership conferences over the years, and I also explain it in depth in my book, Developing the Leader Within You. The idea is this. If you focus your attention on the activities that rank in the top 20% in terms of importance, you will have an 80% return on your effort. For example, if you have 10 employees, you should give 80% of your time and attention to the best two. If you have 100 customers, the top 20 will provide you with 80% of your business, so focus on them. If your to-do list has 10 items on it, the two most important ones will give you an 80% return on your time. If you haven't already observed this phenomenon, test it, and you'll see that it really plays out that way. One year as I went through this process, I realized that I had to totally refocus and restructure one of my organizations. The other guideline that I use whenever I evaluate my priorities is the three R's. No, not reading, writing, and arithmetic. My three R's are requirement, return, and reward. I believe that to be effective, leaders must order their lives according to these three questions. One, what is required? We're all accountable to somebody for the work we do, an employer, a board of directors, stockholders, the government, and so on. We also have responsibility for the important people in our lives, such as spouse, children, and parents. For that reason, any list of priorities must begin with what is required of us. The question I ask myself is, what must I do that nobody can or should do for me? As I have gotten older, that list has gotten shorter and shorter. If I am doing something that is not necessary, I should eliminate it. If I'm doing something that's necessary but not required of me personally, I need to delegate it. Number two, what gives the greatest return? As a leader, you should spend most of your time working in your areas of greatest strength. Ideally, leaders should get out of their comfort zone but should stay in their strength zone. Here's my rule of thumb. If something I'm doing can be done 80% as well by someone else, I delegate it. If you have a responsibility that someone else could do according to that standard or that could potentially meet that standard, then develop and train a person to handle it. Just because you can do something does not mean that you should do it. Remember, leaders understand that activity is not necessarily accomplishment. That's the law of priorities. Number three, what brings the greatest reward? The final question relates to personal satisfaction, satisfaction, Tim Redmond, president of Redmond Leadership Institute, observed, There are many things that will catch my eye, but there are only a few things that will catch my heart. Life is too short not to do things that you love. I love to teach leadership. I love writing and speaking. I love spending time with my wife, children, my grandchildren. I love playing golf. No matter what else I do, I will make time for those things. They are the fire lighters in my life. They energize me. They keep me passionate. And passion provides the fuel in a person's life to keep him going. It is the responsibility of leaders to make tough decisions based on priorities. That can sometimes make them unpopular. Back in 1981, when Jack Welch became chairman and CEO of General Electric, it was a good company. It had a 90 year history. The company's stock traded at $4 a share and the company was worth about $12 billion, 11th best on the stock market. It was a huge, diverse company that included 350 strategic businesses. But Welch believed the company could become better. What was his strategy? He used the Law of Priorities.